I'm sorry for the dead. I'm sorry. We're all gonna die one day. Everyone here will die. There's no point running away from it and running away from reality. You need to stop being a country of queers. President Jair Bolsonaro, November 10, 2020, after 163,000 Brazilians have officially died of COVID-19. Welcome to the Politics of Pandemics, Episode 19, Just a Little Flu, Part 1. Which world leader has caused the deaths of more of their countrymen as a result of this pandemic? It's a very difficult question to answer, with methods of deaths being inconsistent at best across the world, and sometimes censored at the worst. Governments can cause their people to suffer and die through simple neglect, corruption, or incompetence. Some countries may have more challenges than others, hardships that make it harder for them to get through the crisis unscathed. However, it is safe to say that if you have a government that actively denies the pandemic and does almost nothing to ensure the virus is kept under control or the well-being of its people, then a lot of people will die. And when such a denialist government controls one of the biggest countries in the world, the death toll they cause can be extreme. In the United States, the denialism driven by extreme partisan politics is very well documented. And this is why the country has the highest official death count in the world. Over a million dead as of late March 2022. But the second highest official death toll belongs to Brazil. Officially, over 660,000 people have died from COVID-19. And unofficially, who knows how many more. That rate per capita is on par with the United States, with 3 out of every 1,000 Brazilians deceased as a result of this pandemic. Like in the United States, the devastating toll of COVID-19 is partially a politically driven disaster, caused in large part by a polarizing and denialist president. Jair Bolsonaro, whose origins in the military hunter of the 1970s and controversial opinions already made him a divisive and unpopular figure before the pandemic, seemed to always do the worst possible thing during the crisis, seeming to take pandemic mitigation measures as an affront to his political agenda and his toxic masculinity. Bolsonaro's far-right populism already cemented him in the international community as Latin America's Trump and the COVID-19 devastation and the similarity between how both men reacted to it further strengthened that reputation. Of course, Bolsonaro is his own man, and Brazil has its own unique challenges. So, let's take a closer look at why Bolsonaro reacted the way he did. This first part will look at the man and the country that elected him, and then subsequently, we will look at how the country responded, and whether the cult of personality that he built around himself is enough to take Bolsonaro into a second term as president, in 2022, or if the damage he has done to Brazil and Brazilians is truly enough to bring him down in what is possibly the most important election Brazil has faced in the post-dictatorship era.
To understand Bolsonaro is to understand Brazil's modern history, so let me offer a criminally short summary of Brazil's recent history over the past 60 years. Brazil was ruled by a military dictatorship from 1964 to 1985, starting with a coup d'etat on April 1st, 1964, and ending with an election that elected a opposition leader for the first time in 21 years. This dictatorship was driven in part by right-wing, anti-communist elements, and supported by conservative elements like the Catholic Church, the upper and middle classes, and, of course, the United States. And during his 21-year reign, the regime violently suppressed free speech, democracy, and tortured dissidents by the thousands, particularly members of leftist groups. One of these leftist guerrillas jailed by the regime was former President Dilma Rousseff, who was tortured and shocked with electricity during her three-year imprisonment in the 1970s. As president, Rousseff set up a truth commission to expose the systemic abuse and torture by the regime in 2012, and wept as she unveiled the report two years later. It is an unflinching report, documenting the horrible crimes the armed forces conducted during its time in power, its support by the U.S. and British agents who trained them on torture techniques, and noting that even today, the armed forces are still reluctant to cooperate with the commission or come clean about its crimes. It details the 434 confirmed deaths caused by the regime, and notes how many more they were unable to trace or attribute directly. The report only adds to what many Brazilians now see as a bleak time in history, one they wish never to return to. But not all Brazilians share this view. Jair Bolsonaro grew up in that era, and entered the military even before he graduated high school. He stayed in the military pretty much until 1988, when he was faced with an allegation of planning to plant bombs in military units in Rio de Janeiro. While eventually acquitted, the accusations jeopardized his military career, which led him to start his political career instead in Rio. He became a federal deputy of Rio de Janeiro in 1991, something like a congressperson or member of parliament, and remained there until 2018 when he became president. Bolsonaro established himself as a far-right populist conservative, and he was never shy about his desire to return to the glory days of the military regime. In 1993, just eight years after the dissolution of the regime, he called for the closing of Congress and said, I am in favor of a dictatorship. We will never resolve serious national problems with this irresponsible democracy. His speech outraged the nation, but... Bolsonaro claimed public support of his remarks, and it doesn't seem like anything came out of it. And parts of Bolsonaro's speech gave hints as to why some people may pine for a dictatorship again. Again from his speech, At the time of the military regime, the economy grew 6% a year. You could buy a car in 36 months. Today, the country barely grows by 1% a year. Inflation is intolerable. Real democracy is food on the table, the ability to plan your life, the ability to walk on the street without getting mugged. Brazil was an incomprehensibly messy democracy then, as well as being horribly corrupt and unequal. Hence why the undercurrent of support for the quote-unquote good times of the 1970s have never really gone away. 
Bolsonaro carried that flag for the far right throughout his political career, banking on the economic instability of the 1990s and the rampant crime to sweep the junta back into power. All the while, he openly advocated for dictatorship and even torture, raising his profile and becoming a voice for right-wing authoritarians like him. But on the other side were the socialists, the workers, and the former leftists who were once tortured and suppressed by the very people Bolsonaro idolized. The Workers' Party is a left-wing party that slowly gained popularity through the 80s and 90s. After losing three consecutive times, its leader, Luis Inacio Lula da Silva, finally became president in 2002 during his forefront and began a period of electoral dominance for the Social Democrats under his own two terms and his successor, Dilma Rousseff. Lula was a former union organizer and Rousseff was a former Marxist guerrilla who, as mentioned, spent three years in prison and tortured by the military regime. So while both presidents and the Workers' Party shifted towards the center over time, Lula, in particular, saw a major period of prosperity in the 2000s, driven by Brazil's abundance of natural resources and an increasing global demand Lula implemented several social programs which aimed to address widespread poverty and hunger, but he also oversaw record corporate profit in many key sectors. The economy grew significantly, poverty and child malnourishment fell, and the national debt shrunk and basically disappeared. And when Lula was ineligible to run for a third consecutive term in 2010, Dilma Rousseff essentially ran on quote, more of Lula, and won. However, it was during the end of Rousseff's first term that the economic miracle of the Workers' Party began to falter. Rousseff further moderated Lula's social programs, introducing subsidies and tax exemption meant to encourage industry, but it failed to justify the cost. Commodity price shocks triggered a downturn in GDP, which led to an economic crisis exposing some major structural weaknesses in Brazil's economy. But while Rousseff was able to win re-election in 2014 against an economic downturn that would become the second worst in the country's history, what really killed the era of the Workers' Party and was instrumental to understanding the 2018 election that Bolsonaro won was Operation Car Wash. Summarizing Operation Car Wash, or Lava Jato, is not possible in a few minutes, so there will be a lot of missed details. It is likely the largest scandal in Latin American history, affecting multiple massive companies in Brazil as well as many major politicians, including Lula himself. Worse still, leaks that came out in 2019 suggest that the investigation into the massive corruption scheme wasn't as clean as it initially seemed. Operation Car Wash centered around Petrobras, the state-owned oil company of Brazil that was a major driver of employment and economic activities across much of the country. 
the executives at Petrobras were found to be taking bribes in return for overpaying construction firms working on major projects like oil refineries. One of the central middlemen of the scheme, Nasser Youssef, was caught, described in Bloomberg in 2015 as Brazil's black market central banker, a career criminal who smuggled cash for the rich and the powerful. His role as bagman for the bribes meant he knew who all the central figures in the scheme were, and they were among Brazil's most rich and powerful. The network of bribes and collusion, while an open secret to many Brazilians, still shocked them at not only how large it was, but how entrenched the network is. The richest man in Brazil at the time was implicated, and, like I said, so was ex-president Lula. The fact that members of multiple major parties in the Brazilian political scene was involved showed the people just how endemic corruption is in the country. The scandal, combined with falling oil prices, caused Petrobras to collapse. Several major companies, like construction company Brick, who was heavily involved with bribes, fell into hard times as well, and the resulting contraction from multiple factors stalled a lot of projects across Brazil and South America, causing hundreds of thousands of Brazilians to be laid off or take significant financial hits. On the political front, the two Workers' Party presidents faced differing troubles. As mentioned, Lula was eventually jailed. And President Dilma Rousseau's 2014 campaign was found to be taking 100 million reals from the owners of Odebrecht, along with several million others distributed across the party's allies. The revelations of Operation Car Wash and the ongoing recession would trigger some of the biggest street protests in Brazil in the post-military era, just a few months after Rousseff began her second term. Millions were out on the streets, protesting the government that enabled the corruption and enriched themselves, but so far failed to really improve matters for regular people. Despite the prosperity of Lula's time, the economic downturn and Operation Car Wash reversed many of the gains of the early 2000s, and with the increase of poverty came an increase of crime as well. Brazilians demanded change, a reckoning for the politicians and the businessmen who stole from them. And right there on the streets with them is Jair Bolsonaro. Dilma Rousseff was impeached as president in 2016, charged with criminal administrative misconduct and disregard for the federal budget. Operation Car Wash was also a major factor. The vote was large enough to be decisive in both houses, over two-thirds in each case. Bolsonaro voted yes, which is no surprise, but his speech when he voted became another chance to showcase his heinous views. He equated Rousseff's impeachment to the coup d'etat of 1964, saying they lost now as they lost then. He railed against communism. And then he dedicated his vote, quote, in memory of Colonel Carlos Alberto Brilhante Ostra, the dread of Dilma Rousseff invoking the name of the man who oversaw the system that tortured Rousseff in the 1970s. That was how Bolsonaro twisted the knife. Rousseff's vice president, Michel Temer, was acting president until the 2018 election. Also from the Workers' Party, Temer was deeply unpopular and actually charged with accepting bribes while in office, though he refused to step down. He would not run for president in 2018 and Lula da Silva stepped up to announce his candidacy. Even with 
Operation Car Wash and the corruption charges that would eventually land him nine and a half years in prison, Lula was very popular still and would easily win based on polling, but he was eventually barred from running. Lula officially dropped out of the running just a few months before the election, leaving the lesser-known major of Sao Paulo, Fernando Haddad, to run against the ascendant Jair Bolsonaro. Then, as now, Bolsonaro did not moderate his views, and was consistent with his racist, sexist, and homophobic statements alongside his support of the military regime. His campaign events were met with protests by women's groups and liberal rights groups. Bolsonaro welcomed these protests, combative as ever, surrounded by his supporters and always showing himself a man of the people walking next to him. Images of his campaign showed him walking along or mobbed by fans. A very chaotic scene. In this chaos of September 6, 2018, Bolsonaro was stabbed by an assailant. The knife perforated his liver, lung, and intestines, and he lost a lot of blood. Bolsonaro would suffer lifelong issues due to the stabbing. The assailant claimed he was ordered to attack the presidential candidate by God. Whatever the reason, it drove a lot of sympathy towards the far-right candidate. And the problems with plating the Workers' Party, the epic problems facing Brazil, and the sympathy for Bolsonaro, it wasn't even close on election day. Bolsonaro became president on New Year's Day 2019. Let's rewind a bit to Operation Car Wash before we get out of Brazilian politics. Sergio Moro was one of the head judges behind Operation Car Wash for most of its time. His chiseled good looks and love for the camera made him a media darling and a hero to the people, as he helped expedite the investigation faster than it normally would for Brazil. Dozens related to Operation Car Wash, including many influential people, were jailed thanks to him. And in 2017, Moro sentenced Lula to prison for his role in Operation Car Wash. One year later, Bolsonaro appointed Moro to be his Minister of Justice, insisting he would be non-political in his job. In 2019, telegram conversations were leaked by Glenn Greenwald of The Intercept that suggested Moro was anything but non-political. The Vazajato, or Car Wash leaks, cast doubt on the whole Operation Car Wash investigation, in particular the imprisonment of Lula da Silva, as Brazilian investigative outlets turned against the former star judge. Moro was found to be colluding and even driving the prosecution in some cases, biasing himself improperly. Moro resigned as Minister of Justice in April 2020 over somewhat unrelated reasons. Lula successfully managed to convince the Brazilian Supreme Court that Moro was biased against him and, in 2021, his sentence was annulled. Operation Car Wash did uncover massive corruption in Brazil, even if some of those prosecutions would turn out to be false. The scope of Operation Car Wash was so big, the impact so overwhelming, it is hard to deny the reality of how bad things were. And now that the Workers' Party was out of power after 16 years, maybe things could change. But Bolsonaro has always been an extremely consistent man, and really, it should have been no surprise how he handled the COVID-19 pandemic when it hit Brazil.
COVID-19 actually began to spread in Brazil's government relatively early. Bolsonaro's press secretary, Fabio Wingarden, tested positive on March 12, 2020, just days after meeting U.S. President Donald Trump and Vice President Mike Pence. Bolsonaro did not catch it himself, but several top government officials did, including the Minister of Mines and Energy and the President of the Senate. By the end of March, 4,000 cases of COVID had been detected in Brazil, with at least one case in each state. From the beginning, Bolsonaro was dismissive towards COVID-19 and the recommended measures against the looming virus. On March 9, 2020, he said, "In my understanding, the destructive power of this virus is overestimated. Maybe it's even being promoted for economic reasons." A week later, when the first death was recorded, he said the virus brought. Quote, a certain hysteria. This was in opposition with his own health minister, Luis Henrique Mendetta, who advocated strongly for social distancing and mask-wearing measures, in line with accepted information at the time. Bolsonaro was also in opposition with many state and local governments who independently enacted local lockdowns and other mitigation measures within their own states or cities. And he also faced strong opposition amongst the people of Brazil, many of whom were now confined in their homes and apartments as the COVID-19 toll climbed. Offended by the callous way Bolsonaro treated the impending pandemic, every day at 8:30 p.m., Brazilians would bang pots and pans at their windows, shouting "Fora Bolsonaro!" in protest of their president. Out with Bolsonaro! They hoped that. Bolsonaro would manage the crisis as a proper leader should, and if not, someone else must. Instead, Bolsonaro continued to deny the virus as a problem, and threatened to fire Mendetta, the health minister, for opposing him. He said in late March, "Some will die. I'm sorry, that's life." In response to increasing numbers of dead people. Meantime, Bolsonaro would continue to hold rallies in close proximity with his supporters. An ego booster that would never really stop through the past two years. He began to promote hydroxychloroquine, the drug that became popular amongst anti-vaxxers, despite the lack of evidence regarding its efficacy even today. And even on April 12, 2020, with over a thousand dead, he proclaimed that the virus was already going away. According to Mendetta, he constantly clashed with Bolsonaro over these points. And these must have reached a breaking point on April 17, 2020, when Mendetta was unceremoniously fired. Mendetta was very popular among Brazilians, and the decision sparked widespread outrage. Bolsonaro, for his part, displayed a cavalier attitude, proclaiming, "I know life is precious, but the economy and jobs must return to normal." Mendetta's replacement, Nelson Tish. Would only last a month in the job as health minister before resigning himself. Like Mendetta, Tish reported being overruled by Bolsonaro over decisions like social distancing and hydroxychloroquine. Before I end this episode. I wanted to talk a little bit about Brazil's infamous favelas. These crowded slums still hold a significant populace of Brazilians, already plagued by abject poverty, neglect, and gang violence. 
And when 60 people live in a single building, sharing facilities like kitchens and washrooms with an inconsistent supply of water and power, a pandemic becomes even more impossible to survive. In Sao Paulo, where 1.5 million people live in favelas, almost 1 in 10 had COVID officially by early June 2020. The reality is definitely worse than what was reported, especially due to both the lack of transparent reporting with the government and the distrust of authorities amongst the favela residents. Here, the government is neglectful at best, destructive at worst, often responding to gang violence with even more indiscriminate violence or evictions. For the people living here, the gangs provide a service that the governments fail to give, especially when many of them lost their jobs during lockdowns. Gangs will even enforce curfew measures in some places in an attempt to keep people home at night. Food kitchens and charities as well must step in, and now they too provide hand sanitizers as well as food and other essentials. In the absence of formal government assistance, it is up to volunteers from both within and outside the community to provide basic needs, sanitation, and disinfection services to the people there. There is also inevitable confusion between state and federal officials, as even in the favelas, Bolsonaro's denialism can take root. People who do listen to the president will think that COVID-19 is just a little flu, that masks are useless, that hydroxychloroquine works. On a more basic level, they are unsure who to listen to, the government who downplays the virus, or the local authorities ordering everyone to stay home. But the most basic problem is that many of the people in the favelas just can't stay home. Already living in cramped quarters, many residents here need to go out every day to survive. They tend to work in formal jobs that require in-person interaction, and one week without work is one week without food. Inconsistent power and water means they may not even have basic appliances like refrigerators, and they must go out every day to fetch food and water. Cooking gas and other basic supplies are in short order, let alone medicine and mass. In a perverse way, the residents of the favelas are obeying what Bolsonaro says when he tells Brazilians to go out and work and live a normal life. They just don't do this by choice, and the poorest Brazilians are paying an even heavier price than they normally do as a result of this negligence. Brazil would have some very tough times ahead. A large part of its population can't lock down, and, and even more are confused as to whether they should. Driven by Bolsonaro himself, anti-lockdown protests would pop up alongside Bolsonaro rallies as the polarizing president takes to the streets to make an enemy out of anyone willing to defy him on his coronavirus denialism. Bolsonaro is now on the side of the virus, or as he calls it, the economy, and he will make sure anyone who defies him pays for it. We'll also try to take a deeper dive into the facets of Brazilian life in COVID, both the deepest tribes in the Amazon and evangelicals who support him, and watch how Brazil's famous beaches and carnivals 
cope with two years of silence during the pandemic. And when the vaccine finally comes to Brazil's shores, we will look at how Bolsonaro's nihilism and strongman tendencies affected even the distribution of the one thing able to pull Brazil out of this disastrous pandemic. Sources for this episode can be found in the episode description. For correspondence and corrections, please message me on Twitter at PolyPandemicPod. I also have a Patreon now, which you can help support the show at PolyPandemicPod. No member rewards yet, but, but I will thank you at the end of the show if you do contribute. Regardless, I would like to hear from you, your story of dealing with this pandemic or any disease, and if you have any suggestions for future topics you would like me to look into. I apologize once again for any mistakes, truncations, and pronunciation errors I have made in the preceding episode. And finally, get boosted, wash your hands, and always be critical of any information you consume, including this podcast. Thank you for listening.